Good morning. Our reading this morning is taken from Acts 2, verses 32 to 47, as will be followed with uh, Tim's speaking afterwards. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witness of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every one was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, I bet nobody saw that coming. 3,000 converts in a single day. That was quite a sermon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had indeed been poured out in life-changing power. 3,000 people receiving forgiveness, new life, the love of God, Christ as their Saviour, the Holy Spirit setting their hearts on fire. How did they know there were 3,000 of them? Because when these people turned to Christ, they were all baptised as a sign that they were welcoming the Spirit of the risen Jesus into their hearts and declaring, Jesus is Lord. The act of baptism vividly declaring that Christ was now in charge of who they were. And when those who had been together in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came, got together at the end of the day, they totted up the numbers and realised, wow, between them, they'd baptised 3,000 people. What a fantastic day. What a logistical nightmare. No database to log everyone's details. 
No secure website with impossibly long terms and conditions in which they could all register and say, yes, we've signed up to the Church of Jesus Christ. Those who were doing the baptisms would have begun to forget the names of the people they baptised after the first half dozen. How do you keep track of all those? And one thing seems clear, it was no flash-in-the-pan event where people jumped on the bandwagon and got off it a few days later because actually they'd just been swept up in the emotion of the moment. They didn't really mean or understand the profession of faith they were making. No. Uh, Not long afterwards, the numbers had grown from 3,000 to 5,000, which means that all those who got baptised had stayed on board and others had got on board as well. As Luke puts it, everyone was filled with awe. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The startling news that God had raised the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from the dead after he'd been crucified. And God had exalted him to his right hand as Lord, Judge and Saviour of the world. That had a massive impact on the city of Jerusalem. So as the crowds dissipated and went on their way, How could you tell which ones were followers of Jesus? They weren't all given a fish badge to wear or a printed baptismal certificate that they could show each other. There was no visible halo above their heads to easily identify them as one of Jesus' saints. I guess they would have been full of joy. So if you met someone in the street with a broad grin on their face, you might guess that they were a follower of Jesus. But how would you identify each other? Luke tells us every day they met together in the temple courts. Everybody knew the time and the place. This was the moment to gather together. Acts 3, we read that Peter and John went up to the temple at 3 in the afternoon, the hour of prayer. They met in Solomon's colonnade, the bit of the temple that was traditionally held to be part of the original structure built by Solomon hundreds of years before. Where else would you go if you were going to worship Jesus, the son of David? So everybody knew the time and the place. Three o'clock tomorrow, we'll be here. Come and join us again for the hour of prayer. And they came. They came back the following day and the day after that. And not everyone who gathered at three o'clock in the afternoon in Solomon's portico would have been a follower of Jesus. Some would have come out of curiosity just to see what all the fuss was about. But as the people gathering, you can imagine those conversations. I was baptised the other day. Are you a follower of Jesus too? You're not. Then let me tell you about why I was baptised. Straight away a chance to share the good news of Jesus, an opportunity to share their faith. And what did they do when they came together in their hundreds and thousands? We don't know, but I don't think it was like a church service. I don't think they all sang hymns. I don't think they all listened in respectful silence on comfortable chairs while Peter or one of the other apostles addressed them or led them in prayer. Something like that might have happened. But I suspect a lot of the time was spent in little clumps of people in excited conversations, talking about what it meant to get baptised. Those who'd known Jesus personally, talking about who he was and what he'd done communicating as much as they knew about this man who'd given their life for them and to whom they'd committed their lives. It would have been in those little knots of small groups of people that people 
received prayer. And where miraculous signs and wonders took place as God answered the prayer of the apostles. There would have been a hubbub of conversation and prayer in the temple. And then afterwards they met in each other's homes. As they went their way and dispersed through the city, the followers of Jesus would be saying to people they'd met that afternoon, come back to my place tonight and have a meal with us. And it was there in people's homes that the discipling of new converts took place. That was the setting where people, as Luke puts it, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, the four pillars of the church, if you like. Let me think about them for a moment with you. The apostles' teaching. These days, if you want to know Jesus, you want to know about him, you simply have to read the New Testament but it hadn't been written yet. So what did you do then? You spoke to someone who'd known Jesus personally, preferably one of the apostles, all of whom had known Jesus throughout his ministry from the early days when John was baptising, right the way through to the point when Jesus returned to the Father. So that was how the apostles spent their time, going to people's homes and sharing with them everything that Jesus had said and done, explaining who he was and the significance of that, how everything had turned out in accordance with all the prophecies about the Messiah contained in the books of Moses, the prophets and the writings. And that way, people who had come to faith were brought to an understanding of what they believed. And they were hungry to know about Jesus this new thing that God had done and how that had been prophesied in the sacred scriptures and how the two fitted together. They devoted themselves to finding out about that. And they devoted themselves to each other as well. Not just to the apostles' teaching, but to fellowship. About committed friendship. About being there for each other about meeting each other's needs and carrying each other's burdens. It's like there was a strong bond formed between followers of Jesus who saw each other actually as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so actually you're not a stranger anymore, you're family. We belong to each other. Even to the point of sharing their material resources to ensure that no brother or sister in Christ went without Luke says there was not a needy person among them. And they welcomed each other into their homes. The kettle was always open and the door, the kettle, the door, the door was always open and the kettle was always on. That's the way that deep and lasting friendships can be formed. Friends will get in touch if they haven't seen you for a week or so because you belong actually to the same group of friends and you know each other and you care for each other and you miss each other. So if you've not been seen, how are you doing? Encouraging you, supporting you, authentic friends, people you can trust enough to be open and honest and vulnerable with them. Having those kind of relationships that make a world of difference because if you find yourself up against it, you know you won't be alone. And it was in each other's homes as well that they broke bread together. There's a bit of debate about what that meant. Did they, did they share communion as we share communion? Did they reenact, perhaps on a daily basis, that last supper that Jesus had shared with his disciples? 
breaking bread to remember his broken body? Sharing wine to remember his blood poured out for them? Or did they break bread just in the sense of, come and have a meal? Let's share what food we've got with each other. And did they do that every time they met? Or, or did they have a meal and then include communion afterwards when they broke bread to remember actually that, that Jesus died for us? We drink wine to celebrate Jesus' covenant with us. Was it just communion? Was it just a meal? Was one followed by the other? Who knows? But what Luke tells us is that eating together was a feature of how these first Christians related to each other. Because you eat together, you build community. You you get to know each other and barriers come down. And that's appropriate enough because Jesus did so much of his ministry around the meal table. And the first followers of Jesus did the same. Come. Let's have fellowship. Let's break bread. Let's learn about Jesus. Let's pray together. Because that's the fourth thing they devoted themselves to, prayer. Not just the formal prayers that happened at set times in the temple, but praying for each other. Praying for the Holy Spirit to work in and through them, empowering their witness. Prayers for the city in which they were based. Prayers for God's grace to carry them through the daily grind and the specific trials that they faced now that they were followers of Jesus because they weren't popular with everybody, least of all the religious authorities. They almost certainly would have used the Lord's Prayer. And the fact that we have it in a couple of different versions suggests that the wording was not unalterably fixed, but the prayer was adapted in different settings. People used it as a framework, not just a set form of words. But when you gather together as a small group of friends where you know and trust each other, it's a powerful prayer to use. Our Father... We're all children of the same Father. That makes us family. There's worship, praying for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done right here, right now, in us and through us and among us. A prayer for everyday practical needs. Actually, am I to be the means of answering that prayer for my brother or sister? If I'm praying, give us this day our daily bread and I've got stuff to spare and they're going short. A prayer that calls us to forgive each other. And accept forgiveness from each other, just as God forgives us when we get it wrong. Because as damaged people, we hurt each other from time to time. A prayer that God would keep us from failure and set us free from evil. It's a prayer that binds people close to each other and to God. And they would have used it as they gathered in each other's homes. And the first believers devoted themselves to these things. These were their priorities. As often as they could, they met to learn about Jesus, to share food, to support each other, to pray for each other, because they knew that the people they met with and the people they prayed for mattered to God. Some people are a little bit sceptical about all this. Was Luke perhaps being just a little bit idealistic in his portrait of the church? in those first few weeks. Was it really that good? Well, I've got to say, if you've experienced authentic Christian fellowship in practice, then it certainly can be that good. Every bit of it. Because when it works, there's nothing to beat it. And if, well, maybe... Maybe Luke is not just painting us a picture of how it really was for those first followers of Jesus, but also he's saying this this is it at its best. 
This is a model for us to emulate. This is how it can be and it should be. When Christians are devoted to God, they're devoted to each other, to prayer, to, to learning about Jesus, to breaking bread and supporting each other. <clears throat> That's part of what we should be about here at Brighton Road. And to some extent we are. We have a network of small groups who meet together once a fortnight, it tends to be, rather than every day. Sometimes here at home, in each other's home, sometimes here in church. But there, what do we do? We study the Bible together. We support each other. We pray for each other. We share the occasional meal. These things are an expression of our devotion to God. And the existence of groups like that, they're a sign of strength in a healthy church. But behind that formal, small group structure, names on a list, groups meeting at this time, at this place, in this home, this is the leader, there is a whole wealth of unofficial stuff going on. Groups of friends meeting together in all kinds of settings to share coffee, to share conversation, to share prayer, to share encouragement, to share resources. Just being together and being there for each other. If you are one of the many teams of people who work together on a specific aspect of church ministry, you will know that that experience can be enriched as friendship and trust grows and it will become so much more than taking a turn on a rotor because you're doing it together as a team. Small groups of people meeting as friendship groups, as teams, as Bible study groups, as prayer groups, fellowship groups, people who break bread together, people who are there for each other. These are a vital feature of any healthy church because they express devotion to God and devotion to each other. And that's what we're about, the first and second greatest commandments. Loving God with all we've got, loving our neighbour as ourselves. And we live, don't we, in an increasingly individualised society. It's estimated that between 2.4 million and as many as 9 million people of all ages suffer from what's been described as chronic loneliness just the television for company. It's a condition that's associated with alcohol and drug abuse, eating disorders and depression. Studies suggest that if you are lonely, that increases the chance of mortality as a result of any disease or condition by 50%. Now in this kind of culture, the church has a key role to play in terms of providing fellowship, Support, community, love, care, meaning and purpose in life. I'm not saying the church has a monopoly on rescuing people from loneliness. Of course we don't. But I am saying that in enabling people to find a place where they belong, where they fit in, where they are loved and cared for and accepted and welcomed as members of God's extended family. That is a vital part of what we are about. And it's actually quite hard to, to achieve that effect in a congregation of 200 or so on a Sunday morning. It becomes far more real and attainable when small groups of, meet, of people meet together 
either in a formal setting, such as a house group or a fellowship group, or an informal friendship, prayer, or support group. And one of the key features of whether a group is healthy or not is whether it welcomes newcomers and makes it easy to join. Many of us will have had the experience, sometimes in church, of being alone in a crowded room where everybody's so busy talking to their friends that they are oblivious to your existence. And if you're feeling a little bit vulnerable, that can be a devastating experience. So in our conversations with each other, in our friendship groups, in our small groups, it's really important that we are outwardly looking, not inwardly focused. And if you're just chatting together, you need members of the group actually to be ready and willing to catch the eye of a stranger, give a smile of welcome, say, come and join us. Not, you know, you, you go to some places and people are trained not to catch your eye because they're concentrating on what they're doing and they don't want to, to engage with you until sometimes they finish their job. We need to be trained to catch each other's eyes, actually, to say, come and join us. You are welcome. I recognise you. I welcome you. I accept you. I love you. If that doesn't happen, the church will wither away because if we're not making the stranger welcome in Christ's kingdom, we are failing in what we are supposed to be doing. And Jesus needs people who will say to someone they've just met, we're doing this, we're meeting here, we're going there this week, would you like to come and join us? That's part of what our big summer programme is about. Can I say we have a barbecue today? Anyone who is a stranger is welcome to come. But as part of our everyday culture, to be looking around for the person we don't know and to touch base and say, you, you matter. You are important. You are valuable. You are special. You are welcome. Because when you communicate that to somebody else, Jesus is communicating his love, his acceptance, his welcome to them through you. And that is our immense calling and our huge privilege. Let's pray. Lord, all of us find ourselves in church because at some point somebody made us welcome. And we look back and thank you for the people who caught our eye, who came over and greeted us, who were there for us, who have been a support to us in times of need, people who have been our friends. And we bless you for them. And we pray that mindful of all we've received from you through them, help us to be there for each other. Keep us outward looking. Keep us welcoming. Keep us reaching out. Build, we pray, the sense of community and belonging through this church. Think of that declaration of Luke. There was no one in need among them. Not just practical needs, but emotional needs. Lord, meet our needs through this church, we pray, and meet the needs of others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.